There's a great vastness of vision which was born from the Buddha's enlightenment. You know, he spoke of beings wandering over countless lifetimes through the different realms of existence. He talked of innumerable different world systems. And the cosmology is vast. You know, unimaginable immensities of time. And at the heart of this vast cosmology of time and space and rebirth, at the heart of it all is the possibility of awakening, the possibility of freedom. That's at the very heart of the teachings. Now, not so many of us have traveled through these other realms, Perhaps not so many of us have seen past or future lives. But there is another way in which we can explore the vastness of the Dharma, the vastness of the teachings, right here in our experience now. And that is through an investigation and exploration of the mystery of consciousness. What is the nature of our minds? How is it that suffering is created for ourselves in our own lives? How is it created in the world? And exploring the possibility of freedom, the possibility of a genuine peace, a genuine happiness. This exploration in this context, is not theoretical. It's not like a philosophic uh, investigation of what the Buddha taught. It's investigating it right in the midst, in the middle of our own direct experience. That's what gives it power. That's what gives it transforming power. All of the Buddhist traditions converge in one understanding of what liberates the mind. Now, the different traditions have many different methods and and metaphysics, but they all converge in one basic understanding about liberation. And the Buddha talked about it very clearly. He said, the supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata, which is how he referred to himself. Namely, liberation through non-clinging. And in other places, he said, this is the deathless. Namely, liberation through non-clinging. Centuries later, the great Indian adept, Talopa, taught his disciple Naropa, who then taught Marpa and Milarepa, and so it was the beginning of one of the great Tibetan lineages. Talopa said, you are not fettered by appearances. You are not fettered by experience. You are fettered by attachment. So cut your attachment. It's the same message, liberation through non-clinging. More recently, 
although it was quite a few years ago, a yogi came to an interview and was describing their insight into clinging and suffering. And they were describing it by saying, suffering is rope burn. You know, and if you're holding on tightly to a rope that's being pulled through your hands, what happens? You get rope burn. Liberation through non-clinging. Now it's important, I think, as we engage in this practice, not to imagine that non-clinging is some state to imagine in the far-off future. You know, if you practice 15 or 20 years, then maybe we'll have a moment of non-clinging. That's not the real meaning of what we're doing. We can practice non-clinging right now. This is our practice in each moment. And all of the techniques, all of the methods, all of the teachings really serve this end. That's the purpose of them. That is the mind of no craving, no attachment. Now, as we all know so well, although often forget, our unfolding experience, whether in meditation practice or in our lives, our unfolding experience keeps changing. And sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant. But the practice of liberation is always the same. We're not practicing in order to have some better experience. Even though that's often what we're doing, the essence of the practice is not that. It's not to get some better experience, however pleasant or wonderful it might be. We're really practicing what the Buddha called the heart's release. So moment after moment, what we're practicing is the mind of no grasping, the mind that's not holding on. So the question arises, how can we accomplish this? It's not hard to understand, but how can we put it into practice so that we are realizing this moment to moment? One way of practicing the mind of no clinging is through the awareness of impermanence. And when we pay attention, of course, we see impermanence, we see things changing on any level we look at. You know, if you think of the most macroscopic level, you know, the birth and death of clusters of galaxies or galaxies or stars. You know, they come into being, they're formed, they're born, they last for however long they last, and then they explode or implode. Or we could go down to the very smallest energy movements of subatomic particles. If we take the two extremes and everything in between, we see that things are changing all the changes of nature, the weather, 
the seasons. We see impermanence in the changing nature of our relationships, our work. We see changes in our bodies, changes in our minds. It's all around us and in us, this nature of change. Now, how many times in the world have people been living peaceful, stable, ordinary lives, and then in a moment something happens and the whole world has been turned upside down? Now, it could be natural disaster, as just happened last week with the huge earthquake in the Indian Ocean. You know, and, and there was a it was an earthquake and then a tsunami, and it, you know, huge destruction and loss of life, and just in a moment, it happened so quickly. You know, and the whole order of life disturbed. It could be the changes. Because of war, you know, or violence, or illness, or disease, so many things happen. And I think it's important that we reflect on the fact that this is the nature of things. It's not that it's a mistake, even when it's very disastrous. It's not a mistake. It's just how things are. And the Buddha was pointing this out. There is no ultimate stability, no ultimate reliability. And if we count on that, we're resting our hope on a delusion. A mantra that I started to use some time ago, and it really helps me open to the truth of this change, this impermanence. It's just a very simple little mantra Anything can happen anytime. And at first, you know, people might hear that and get a little depressed or paranoid. Anything can happen anytime, and they're kind of in a state of fear. But for me, it's not that at all. It actually relaxes the heart. Because instead of living defensively, trying to protect ourselves from change, the more we acknowledge it, the more we open to it, the more we see, yes, this is just the nature of things. This is the Dharma. The more we acknowledge it, we can relax into it and open to the flow, both of pleasant and unpleasant. So the deepening of meditative insight also happens through our refinement of our perception of change. So we see it not only in the big things in our lives, but in meditation practice, we can begin to see it in the very microscopic movements and changes that are going on. And you can hone this perception with a very simple, like a little technique in meditation, and that is, In your practice, pay attention not only to what it is that's arising, you know, the breath, a sensation, a thought, sound, whatever it is. Pay attention not only to what it is that's arising, but also notice 
what happens to that object, what happens to the sound, what happens to the thought, what happens to the sensation, so that you're really connecting with it in the moment and seeing directly its changing nature in one way or another. It gets stronger, it gets weaker, it disappears, it fades. So when we do that over and over again, the insight into impermanence becomes very embodied. We're seeing it so vividly and so clearly, moment after moment. And even when we look at sounds disappearing, or the breath coming and going, you know, with certain sensations arising and passing away, when we look even more closely at each of those experiences, a breath, a sound, a sensation, each of those is not just one thing. Each sound, each breath, is a flow of even more microscopic changes. You know, it's like a current, a stream. So our minds can get very concentrated in this awareness, in this insight. Given the preponderance, not preponderance, like this, <laughs> I don't know a word bigger than pre- preponderance, the, uh, given the truth of change on every level, it's not only that change is predominant or preponderant, truth, change is happening all the time, every moment. Given this, one of the strangest aspects of our delusion, the delusion that we live in so, so much in our lives, is that when we look back at our past experience, we know this so well. And we all know our past experience, it has that dreamlike quality. Now, where is your experience of last year, or last month, or last week, or the last sitting? Now, it's all gone. It's disappeared. It's so clear that it's changing. But this is, this is our deluded mind at work. When we look ahead, when we look forward, we just become entranced with all the possibilities that are there before us in our lives as if some new experience will finally fulfill us, will finally fulfill all our longings, even though nothing we've experienced in the past has done it. And we're just driven in our lives, always waiting for the next hit of something, as if that will do it. You know, do you ever have thoughts of what your next sitting will be? You know, or fantasies about what you'll do when you first leave the retreat? You know, maybe connecting with your partner or sleeping in your own bed or having a cappuccino or whatever your particular fantasy is. And yet all of those experiences that you might be looking forward to, all of those are going to soon be past. 
just like all of the others. And you've probably noticed that the older we get, it all seems to be flying by more and more quickly. Someone once commented that when they turned 55, breakfast seemed to happen every 15 minutes. You know, and it just, it's like that, the days, and especially in a place like this, you must have that sense of just incredible flow, changing nature. Came across this little poem by Ryokan, that great 18th century Japanese poet, hermit, Zen master. Uh, He wrote some beautiful poetry just about the solitary meditative life. This one really resonated with me. He said, late at night, listening to the winter rain, was it only a dream? Was I really young once? It seems like that. I mean, when I when I think back, you know, to my teens or twenties or thirties, where is all that now? Through the direct and intimate experience of impermanence seeing it again and again, reflecting on it again and again, that whatever arises, that whatever arises will also pass away, that all of our experience is just this endlessly passing show. It's like the current of a river or water over a waterfall. Through seeing this repeatedly and seeing it clearly, we begin to loosen the grip of attachment and clinging. And the liberating power of this seeing was expressed very explicitly by the Buddha in a very startling statement. He said, it's better to live a single day seeing the momentary arising and passing of phenomena than to live a hundred years without seeing it. I find that quite amazing. What is the Buddha saying about what is of most value in our life? He said, it's better to live a single day seeing the momentariness, the momentary rising and passing of phenomena than anything else we could do in a hundred years of our lifetime. That's how liberating it is. That's why the practice of refining our perception so that we see that is so important. So the Buddha went on and gave some pretty explicit instruction in how we can practice this. He said, whatever feelings arise, 
whether pleasant feelings, unpleasant ones, neutral ones. So whatever feelings arise in the mind or body, abide contemplating impermanence in those feelings. Contemplate the fading away, the letting go of those, con- of those feelings. Contemplating thus, we do not cling to anything in this world. Just think for a moment of, of what this actually means. Feelings arise and we see contemplate means being aware of and even reflecting on, perhaps. Contemplating, being aware of the impermanent nature of whatever feelings arise moment after moment. Contemplating thus, we do not cling to anything in this world. When we don't cling, there is no agitation. That's an interesting phrase. When we don't cling, there is no agitation. When not agitated, we personally attain Nibbāna. This is not a question of pulling away from experience, but rather learning to not hold on. And those are two different things. And it's the difference, I think, in our language between the word detachment and non-attachment. Because the connotation of detachment means a kind of pulling back, a not caring, And I think that's really not what we're practicing. We're not practicing detachment, we're practicing non-attachment. So we're open fully to each arising moment, but without that added movement of grasping, without the added movement of attachment. So in case we're still missing it, You know, we hear all this, it's very straightforward, it's not complex, it's it's difficult to do because of our habit patterns, but it's not complicated. Liberation through non-clinging. But in case we still need more help, the Buddha very compassionately pointed out those arenas where we habitually do cling. So we can pay particular attention in these arenas and notice the nature of the grasping mind. The first arena of clinging, which is very uh, common, I think familiar to us all, is the attachment or clinging to sense pleasures. We like the pleasant experience of the senses, pleasant sights and sounds and smells and pleasant sensations. I mean, do you ever come into the hall hoping for unpleasant sensations? Probably not. You know, when you have this nice sitting and not so much pain and lightness, oh yeah, this is a good sitting. And this pleasant attachment to sense, pleasant sense experience also in this, in this context includes attachment or clinging to pleasant thoughts and pleasant feelings. You know, it's easy to get lost in reveries, come in and sit, and I've 
especially toward the beginning of my practice, I would just sit down and think for the hour, you know, and just be lost in this kind of reverie, pleasant, dreamlike state. It was great. It was very pleasant. The hour went quickly. (laughs) And I got up, oh, that was kind of nice. And I wasn't seeing the attachment, the clinging to the sense pleasure of that. And even kind of more surprising than that, when our thoughts or the images or feelings are not particularly pleasant, even when they're unpleasant, we can get lost in the rather dubious pleasure of simply being lost. You know, we, we kind of enjoy that feeling of being distracted. And so we get attached to that. Investigating this attachment to pleasant sense experience, and it can be, you know, really big attachments, and it can be very small ones. You know, just a little taste hit, or you're sitting and, you know, there's just slight discomfort in the body, not even major pain, just slight discomfort, and then, you know, a shift to ease that, you know, slight, slight shift, because we don't like the unpleasantness and we get attached to feeling something more pleasant. Begin to look at it even in these very simple uh, ways. The more we look at this attachment to sense pleasure, we develop more and more insight and understanding about the power of addiction, the power of fascination, the power of the wanting mind. Many of you have heard me use this example of uh, it's so it's so striking to me of what I call catalog consciousness. You know, we're not, of course, here, but at home, you know, you get a catalog in the mail, many probably, and as soon as you make the mistake of even opening it, it's amazing what at least my mind does, and maybe this is familiar to you. It's like I'll just start turning the pages waiting for something to want. It's like I'm wanting to want. And of course, usually there's not much in there. But you keep turning the pages hoping that on the next page there'll be something to want. And this is just the power of this habit we have. A note that I found very helpful in meditation when the wanting mind comes up, when we can see this desire for sense pleasure, and it might be, you know, it might be reverie, it might, maybe it's some sexual fantasy, maybe it's a food fantasy, whatever, whatever your particular thing is. I found it very helpful as soon as I become aware of that pattern in the mind simply to note dead end. Because it is a dead end. It doesn't go anyplace. It's just an arising, which we often get caught in, 
But then we come to the end of a dead-end road and it's just coming back and starting all over again. Well, if you put that dead-end sign up at the beginning of the road rather than at the end, you'll save yourself all of that, uh, all of that distracted time. Seeing the pattern of our attachment to sense pleasures doesn't mean that we don't act in the world, and it doesn't mean even that we don't enjoy pleasant things when they come. Because in our lives, a lot of pleasant experience comes, quite naturally. But can we be present with the pleasantness, with a sense of openness, but without the clinging, without the attachment, and without desire becoming the driving force in our lives, as it is for so many people. In addition to the pleasant sense experience, another great field of attachment, and perhaps one that's even more noticeable while you're on retreat, is the attachment we have to pleasant meditative experience. And this can be even more seductive. Now, once the mind begins to settle down a bit, gets a little more concentrated, the body settles, there can be tremendously pleasant experiences where the body becomes very light. There is a lot of light, rapture, calm, peace. Feelings of happiness, feelings of joy, feelings of clarity. And there are times when the practice itself becomes so enjoyable. Now, these are all actually signs of deepening practice on the one hand, and on the other hand, at a certain point in practice, all of these states become what are called corruptions of insight. Why? Not because they're bad in themselves, but because the mind is very prone to becoming attached to these states. It's as if that's what we're practicing for, for the lightness, for the clarity, for the joy, for the happiness, instead of practicing for the freedom that comes from not clinging. We start to confuse our priorities. Remember at one point in Burma, I've been going through a particularly long, dry period you know, it was just a lot of really discomfort in the body and the mind was not flowing and it just felt like I was just cranking it out day after day, week after week. Uh, but I just kind of kept going, going, sitting and walking. And then after s- some weeks of this kind of practice, when it kind of changed and everything opened and there was this feeling of, of great lightness and joy and so went into Sairao, Upandit, and reported. And the second day I reported the same thing, third day I reported the same thing. And on the third day he just said to me, haven't you enjoyed this long enough? I thought, this is just three days. I spent weeks, you know, in a place of struggle. But he was 
really pointing out, don't get attached to this. This is not the point of practice. But it's very seductive. So we need to be aware of that. (coughs) And for experienced meditators, there's another kind of fascination that can happen. Not only the attachment to these pleasant meditative states, but we can get fascinated with the unfolding process itself. It's like sometimes it happens on the psychological or emotional level where we just get so interested in kind of the patterns of our own psychological, emotional life and world and we begin to see with greater clarity you know, the whole process and how it's unwinding or unfolding and then that becomes our aim. That becomes our purpose. Rather than just letting it happen in its natural course, always practicing the mind that is simply not clinging. Or we can feel it in our body often when we're, when we're meditating and experiencing the body just as an energy field. You know, when we've gotten past the sense of solidity of the body, I know for myself, often I've just gotten so interested in watching this energy pattern of the body unwind that I find myself practicing in order for it to unwind. Instead of seeing it simply as a byproduct of not clinging, I get seduced into the process. And that's really just another aspect of attachment to becoming. We're practicing in order for something to happen. Instead of practicing the mind of no grasping. These are very different attitudes. At one point Saido told me, and it was a very it was one of the most useful interviews I had with him. I had gone in and I had been there for some months and so my mind was quite microscopic in its attention and so interested in it all and he just told me talking to me you're too attached to subtlety you know and it was true I was just getting so fascinated and I was losing the balance so this happens in many ways in meditation these are all the things that we want to become aware of freedom is not in some particular new experience. We're not practicing for a new experience, however subtle it may be. Another mantra, a little Vipassana mantra, which has been helpful to me, It's a little awkward English construction, but it gets the point, I think. It doesn't matter to what you don't cling. It doesn't matter to what you don't cling. So that means you don't have to wait for some special experience to not cling to it. Might as well practice not clinging now. And so experience the freedom that comes from that now. 
It's not something to postpone. Again, the Buddha just, he expressed this so incisively. He said, this is from the Dhammapada. He said, let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present, and cross over to the further shore. Okay, we hear a lot, let go of the past, let go of the future. The Buddha is saying, let go of the present. Just in hearing those words, I think one could get enlightened. <laughs> let go of past, let go of future, let go of the present. Just that letting go. Cross over to the further shore. Okay, so this is the first arena of attachment, of clinging, the Buddha was pointing out to. Clinging to sense pleasures, clinging to meditative states. The second arena of attachment is the attachment we have to our views and opinions about things. And it's just instructive to watch our own minds and to see how many views and opinions we have about almost everything. And what's so striking is that often we have these opinions about things we really know nothing about. But it doesn't stop us from having an opinion. So I think it's helpful to begin to see that. We don't have to be so attached to our particular viewpoint. Pay attention. You know, when an opinion or a view is arising, pay attention to whether it's something you really know or it's just a belief that you have not based on much of anything. And we can also let go of the attachment even to things that we do know from experience. Because I don't think any of us are really omniscient. So even with things that we do know, can we keep an open mind? Just stay open to other points of view, other perspectives. It's very easy to develop a kind of pride about one's knowledge, about one's understanding, even a pride about one's insight, about one's meditative insight. Well, I have really good insight into selflessness. (laughs) When we cling to points of view... when we cling to beliefs, when we cling even to genuine insight and knowledge, when the clinging is there, it just plants the seeds of sectarianism. And we see the huge danger of that in the world today. Now, how much of the suffering, how much of the violence in the world comes from this kind of attachment? attachment to sectarian belief, and often it's religious belief. It's dangerous. This is not a trivial thing. People's minds get completely caught up in this attachment, in this grasping. And we should watch for it in our own minds. 
Uh, one of the Christian Buddhist conferences I was at, uh, it was in Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky, and there were 25 Buddhists and 25 Christian, mostly Benedictine and Trappist leaders. And the Dalai Lama was there. And he was so beautiful because he so embodies this non-sectarian viewpoint, even as he embodies so fully his own tradition. He said, and, and so genuinely, in talking to the group, he said, my way is right for me, your way may be right for you. And it's such a simple statement, but you could feel the authenticity of it in him. That lack of holding, that lack of attachment to a viewpoint. It doesn't mean not having views, not having understandings. It means not clinging to them. There was a I think a 17th century or 16th century Zen master named Bankai who wrote a wonderful book uh, which, or his teachings were collected in a book uh, now called The Unborn. And one of the lines in this book which I think is a very useful uh, reminder to us, something, something to hold you know, as we go through the day, he said, don't side with yourself. And just as a little aphorism to remind us, as you go through the day, pay attention to all those times when we are siding with ourselves and see, okay, what is the view? What is the perspective that I'm holding on to, that I'm attached to here? So there's attachment to sense pleasures, to meditative pleasures, to insight. There's attachment to opinions and views. The deepest attachment that we have and the one that so conditions our lives and our understanding is the attachment and clinging to the view of self, to the concept of self, to the idea that there is someone behind the flow of experience to whom the experience is happening. We construct a reference point. The reference point of I, the reference point of self. Without seeing that that is simply a mental construct. That is something that is being added to the flow of experience. So in our practice, we want to see how this sense of self is constructed. And it's constructed in this flow of experience, of changing experience, in any moment when we identify with what is arising. It's this process of identifying with that creates the felt sense of self. Clearly, most of us identified quite strongly with this body. 
We take this body to be I. But when we look more carefully at it, we see that there's nothing in this that could be called self. If you think of a newborn, you know, a young infant and a baby and a child and an adolescent and a young adult and middle age and old person and then a corpse, the body has gone through these incredible changes. Which body is I? Which body is self? Or sometimes through laparoscopic surgery inside, you know, you, sometimes you can get these videos of the surgery where you see, you know, the, they've gone in and there's this miniaturized camera. And so you get the picture of the whole inside of the body, and it's so incredible, you know, just seeing all the organs and the muscles and the. You know, when we're looking at the liver or the gallbladder, would you say, yep, that's me? Not so likely. We don't, we don't so identify with the liver as being self, you know, or the guts as being self. But it's all wrapped up nicely in skin. You know, it's a nice little package. And then, oh, yeah, that's me. That's who I am. So we're basing that on a very superficial or low commonplace perception. It's that we're not looking deeply enough not seeing deeply enough. Ramana Maharshi, the great Indian saint of the last century, he pointed out the danger of this attachment, this identification. He said, to identify with the body and yet seek happiness is like attempting to cross a river on the back of an alligator. This body is going to go through its inevitable changes and dissolution and decay. And it's just what happens. This is one of the arenas in which to look at our experience in meditation. Can we learn to be with all the manifestations of the body, all the elements you know, the changes of posture, whatever level we're experiencing the body, and to see it simply as an unfolding process and not adding that extra piece. This is I, this is me, this is mine. We create a felt sense of self or I in all those moments when we're lost in and identified with thoughts, you know, which happens countless times a day. I'm thinking, I'm planning, I'm judging. Can we see that the I and the mine is extra? One of Munindra's, my first teacher's, one of his frequent lines in teachings, he would say over and over again, the thought is the thinker. It's not that there's someone who is having the thought. Rather, the thought is thinking itself. The thought is the thinker. Notice how many times in the day we get identified with stories we make up about ourselves or other people. 
Now, sometimes I think that most of our lives are spent in the world of projection. We just make up stories and then are living in the stories. Now, how many thoughts have you had just about your fellow yogis here? You know, different comments that arise in the mind. You know, even in more innocuous circumstances, you're just standing on line at the supermarket. And how many little flitting thoughts pass through the mind about the people you see? You don't even know them. You know, it's just the mind doing this, getting caught up again and again in these little stories. There's something amazingly powerful to learn about the mind and about the nature of thought being here on retreat. And I think it's one of the most liberating aspects of the meditation practice. And that is seeing over and over again that the only power thoughts have is the power that we give them. The thought in itself has no power at all. And when you look very carefully at the nature of thought, not getting lost in the content, but it's almost as if you hold the question in the mind, what is a thought? What is it as a phenomenon? And there are, there are endless opportunities to observe this, because as you know, they come quite often. Okay, what is it? And when you look in that way, you see that the thought is little more than nothing. There's not much there. And yet the difference between, in our experience between being lost in a thought and being aware that we're thinking, that difference is enormous. When we're lost in thought, it's like being enslaved. We're enthralled. Sometimes I think of thoughts as being these little dictators of the mind. You know, just saying, do this, do that, go here, go there. And in and of themselves, they're nothing. So we can train ourselves, and this is a good, a good deal of the training, to be aware enough that thoughts arise, we know that we're thinking. And then we really can experience the freedom of mind that comes out of that awareness. We're not so driven by our thoughts. One just further little suggestion for your practice. Obviously, there'll be many times when we are caught up, when we are lost in a thought for some time, and then there's a moment of awakening, a moment of recognition. Right? Maybe it's in the middle of the thought, maybe it's the end, but at a certain point we recognize, oh, I was thinking, right in that moment, instead of the rather typical pattern of judging oneself for having been lost, you can delight in the fact that you have awakened to the nature of thought. So each time, it doesn't matter that you've been lost, pay attention, focus on the experience of having awakened to it, 
And that actually brings a great deal of delight in the practice. So we create this felt sense of self, this attachment to self through identification with the body, identification with thought, identification with emotions. You know, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm depressed, I'm angry. These emotions arise out of conditions, just like clouds in the sky. You know, the clouds appear when the conditions are there, conditions change, the clouds dissipate. The emotions that we feel are exactly like that. But they're often very difficult to really, for us to be really mindful of them because often emotions are what we most personalize. This is who I really am. This is me. So a lot of our training is including all of these emotions and mind states that come, and practicing being aware of them in the same way that you might be aware of a sound. No sound comes, it arises in that open, clear space of the mind, it's no problem. It's pleasant sound, unpleasant sound, doesn't matter. Can we be with emotions in exactly that way? Not taking them to be I, not taking them to be self, It's anger which angers. Fear fears. Love loves. Joy joys. Each emotion is simply manifesting its own nature. It arises out of conditions. It passes when the conditions change. So this is a great training to be able to hold emotion in this way. There's a beautiful uh, or a striking image from a Tibetan text in talking about these different mind states. It makes the analogy to clouds and it talks about how clouds have no roots, no home. Right? And just the image of a cloud you know, having a root you know, and being tethered to the ground. Well, that's what we do with emotions. We tether them you know, through our identification and create that sense of self, that sense of holding. Can they be like the clouds? No roots, no home. We're open to them, we feel them, but we're not holding on to them, we're not identified with them. So this is a training. And the most subtle level of identification and attachment, and this is the one that really is at the root of the sense of self, is our identification and attachment to awareness itself, to knowing. Even when we see all the elements of the body and thoughts and emotions as being passing and impermanent, still is this very strong sense of, well, I'm the one knowing it. You know, and so we create this sense of an observer apart from, distinct from the flow of experience. We set this observer back, that's who I am. And so in our practice, it's to see that also, the knowing itself as impersonal. As I've mentioned you know, many times in different retreats, just a little tool for doing that, which I found very helpful in my practice, 
is to frame the experience in the passive voice. For example, a sound being known, a sensation being known, a thought being known. Because that passive voice construction takes the I, takes the self out of it. It's just something being known, moment after moment. And when we're in that flow, we see that the knowing is arising spontaneously, effortlessly. There's no one there doing anything. And then we can take it a step further and ask the question, known by what? What is the nature of this knowing? Now, just something as simple as just the sensations of a movement. Those sensations are just appearing and being known. Known by what? When we look, there's nothing to find. And yet the knowing is continually arising. This is the great mystery of consciousness. And it's, it's quite amazing. A liberation through non-clinging. We accomplish this through the seeing of impermanence. Just noticing how everything is in this state of constant flow, constant change so we don't cling. We accomplish it through seeing those areas, arenas, where we do cling. We pay attention to that, to the sense pleasures, the meditative pleasures, the opinions, the views, the sense of self. We accomplish the mind of no clinging through the experience of selflessness. of learning to be with experience without identifying with what's arising, but letting each experience simply be what it is. The Buddha summed all of this up when he said, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Whoever hears this has heard all the teachings. Whoever practices this has practiced all the teachings. And whoever realizes this has realized all the teachings. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Not the body, not thoughts, not emotions, not awareness itself. Let's sit for just a few minutes. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.